Welcome to the All About the Customer podcast brought to you by Influitive, where we talk with customer-obsessed people to uncover how you can be more customer-focused. I'm your host, Dan Kalmar. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Pedowitz. For over 20 years, Jeff has helped marketing departments reclaim authority, credibility, and job security by transforming themselves from cost centers into revenue centers. His company, The Pedowitz Group, has developed an unparalleled reputation in the marketing community, emerging as a beacon of insight on topics such as digital transformation, customer centricity, business accountability, and marketing technology. The Pedowitz Group is passionate about helping its clients generate revenue. With over 70 expert consultants in 24 states, the Pedowitz Group has served over 1,500 corporate clients, many of which are household names from the Fortune 500. It has launched over 10,000 marketing campaigns and helped generate over $25 billion in marketing-sourced and marketing-influenced revenue. In 2021, Jeff released a book called F the Funnel, and in this episode, we dive into a core topic of that book, the idea that the traditional sales and marketing funnel that we all know and maybe don't all love isn't working. But don't worry, we don't just leave you hanging. Jeff also provides this framework for a better approach. One that's more in line with how today's customers actually want to buy. Jeff, welcome to the All About the Customer podcast. So glad to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. So in 2021, uh, you released a book called F the Funnel, uh, a provocative title. Uh, and a, a big part of you know what that book's about and, and what you talk to people about is this idea that the traditional sales marketing funnel that a lot of us think is the gold standard uh, is actually pretty outdated. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it really has been around for even before we were born. It's about, about 100 years old. So it goes back to some of the earliest advertising models from the late 1800s, just awareness, right? Interest, desire, a close. And for really the better part of, of a century that everyone used it. I'm not denying that it didn't have its effect, but really it was created by companies to manage its own business forecast, just like a manufacturing company has a, has a point, uh, assembly line, right, that it wants to manage. But the challenge, though, is uh, it's not that customers ever really wanted to be sold to even 100 years ago. They, we always wanted to buy. It's just they didn't really have a choice up until recently. And, you know, with the rise of the Internet and digital channels and changes in buying behavior, customers are more in control now than, than they ever were before. And then a lot of the recent studies are showing that customers are 90 to 95 percent of the way through the sales process before they even want to speak to anybody. So it really makes the funnel an antiquated model. One, because it's not com- customer-centric at all. It's really about the company and about what the company wants to do to forecast. That's one problem. The second is it's a transactional model to allow you to forecast to get to a deal closure, but it doesn't take into account what happens with the customer afterwards. And no matter what our businesses are, we all want our customers to buy again. We all have some degree of repeat purchase behavior. Why wouldn't we want to have a model that was more reflective of not just what happens before the sale, but what happens after the sale? And too many companies just ignore it. They think that the job's done once the contract's signed. Let's go back and get the next customer. It's like uh, ditching ditching your spouse at the altar, right? Like before even the honeymoon gets there. So for our customers, it's the beginning of the relationship, not the end. If you want to go even deeper into this topic of buying behaviors and how they've changed, I suggest listening to episode 15 of the podcast with best-selling author Brent Adamson. Brent shares not only how buying journeys have changed, but also a new sales and marketing technique that complements Jeff's approach pretty nicely. And similar to Brent, Jeff mentioned how buyers maybe didn't ever want to buy this way in the first place. So it got me thinking, 
Was the funnel ever actually a good way to market and sell our products? Or was it only there because we didn't have a better way? Just a simpler example, like what happens when you're in the, the store shopping for something and the salesperson hits you, you're like, yeah, like taking five steps in. Hi, can I help you today? What can I do for you? Like, whoa, whoa, like I just, you know, I haven't even had a chance to look around yet. Uh, it, it really just feels so overwhelming and so obnoxious. They don't want to help you. Like they just want to sell you something. So it has to be much more natural. It, it should be more natural. I mean, I think what we've always craved as human beings, even going back thousands of years, are relationships, a social connection, a true social connection. Back when there were no TVs, no radios, no internet, no phones, people sat around a campfire and they told stories. And, and, and that's how people communicated through stories. The, the earliest days of the cavemen, people drawing pictures and telling stories on a wall. It's, it's, it's in the very core of our DNA, right? The very fabric of our being is to share stories, images, um, share emotion and connect on, on, a, on a much deeper level, not to be transacted with. And now, now I'm just picturing on one of those cave walls as a marketing funnel. Maybe they didn't call it back then, but maybe there's there's a funnel on one of those cave walls. There's some hieroglyphic for that. Yeah. It represents the ancient. So you see here, this is the ancient uh, funnel. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I love that analogy of, of walking into a store and the salesperson hits you up because I, I, think, I think it's so apt because we're so conditioned to not want to talk to those salespeople that when I walk in a store and I actually do want help and they say, is there anything I can help you with? My default answer is no. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I actually do need help finding this thing. I'm just so, so conditioned to not want the salesperson's help because you're right. It's, it's about them. It's not about me. They're not really, well, truly. I mean, you know, look, unless it's like the day before Christmas and you're guilty, you realize you haven't gotten all your stuff yet for your kids and your wife and you're scrambling, you need all the help you can get because you got to get in and get out and get everything wrapped and get back to the, you know, the house. But yeah, generally speaking, it's about us on our terms, right? It's not that we don't want help. It's just that we want to decide when we want it. Like we don't want it to be forced upon us. Um, and, and unfortunately that's, that's what's happening. And, you know, even without the funnel, look at how the best of channels get ruined over time. I look at what's happening with LinkedIn right now. I mean, there's this, I didn't come up with this term, but um, it's called the pitch slap. And then, you know, it's basically where someone connects to you, you accept the connection and they're immediately trying to sell you something it's become so salesy and, and people are either outright looking for jobs or they're trying to sell you their wares. And I get it. Sure. We're all professionals. And, and you know, I, I, and as a professional salesperson myself, I'm never going to apologize for promoting and selling what I, my, my company, but we have to realize though, that yes, we have our needs, but instead of our customers and so do our people, we have to find a balance to it. And, and we have to be able to do it in a way that's much more natural. So it's really more about, being a trusted advisor, coaching, advising, helping, facilitating, answering the right question at the right time in the right place. And so that sounds like the loop, which is what you've come up with. So, so, so tell us about what the loop is and why it's a better system than the traditional funnel. Yeah, I mean, we came up with a loop. Um, I know, again, I'm not, not sure that we are the first ones to draw the customer lifecycle in the shape of, a, of an infinity loop, but we're probably one of the first to really develop a methodology around it. And it really is more about, so if you take the concept of the triangle, the basically the triangle of a funnel and it stops at that, that closed one, we, we started just adding steps like, okay, but what happens now the customers on board, it's, they're not, they're not a closed one. What do we start doing? Well, okay. We would onboard them. You know, we have some kind of kickoff call. We send them some swag or we, you know, get going. We introduce their team, set up the portal, whatever it is, you know, that we're doing as companies. 
Um, and then they, they're going to start adopting our product or service. So we added that. Then they have to get value. We added that. Then they, they become loyal. Then finally, ideally, they become advocates. So we're like, okay, now we have these two triangles, right? So the triangle comes down, down and the triangle expands. We just started playing around with different models, turned it sideways. We're like, okay, this actually looks like an infinity loop. So the reason we started working with it more and more, and and you know we thought about not just B to C, but particularly the complex B to B sale, where you know if you're a big company and you have multiple SKUs, you could conceivably have your customer be in multiple stages of that loop at the same time, right? They they could be completely unaware that you sell product X Y Z solve this, but they could have been a loyal or an advocate customer using product one two three four five for the last ten years, and everything in between, and then. You could have the people that are loyal to you. The company is not. The company could be loyal. The people are not. You know, you get into all these fascinating combinations when you get into the reality of, of today's commerce and, and relationships. So we just really started working with the loop and realized that it's a fluid, living, breathing thing. Uh, you know, having started at Eloqua and our team really created the concept of lead scoring originally, uh, because before 2004, this didn't even exist as a term in our lexicon. And then watching companies try and struggle to implement the serious decisions waterfall, it's too rigid. It's too unrealistic. You know, the reality is it's even with our loop, it doesn't really matter how many steps are in the loop. Just because we say, we say 10 as a starting point, you got a five, you got 15, seven. It's really more about, have you truly mapped out how your customers buy from you and how you serve them throughout the whole journey? Not just in sales, but in marketing, customer service, manufacturing, finance, logistics, whatever your departments are, how do you line up with the customer? And it becomes more of an organic kind of uh, amoeba, right? Where you're you're just trying to stay in sync with the customer. So that's really was the impetus behind the loop. And so when we talk about it, and we implement it. We are not trying to force some like, oh, you have to have this step before this step. We don't believe in the concept of external benchmarking with conversion metrics. Uh, we believe in benchmarking against your own baseline. Uh, even if you're selling against other, comparing against other companies in your industry, because look, what if they go indirect, right? Maybe they sell to resellers and you have a direct sales force. Maybe they sell to enterprise, you just sell to SMB. Maybe your pricing strategy is different. Maybe someone has better branding. I mean, there's so many aspects that go into how people buy and sell. So when you're trying to truly compare conversion numbers of one to the average, there really is no such thing. And do you find the loop applies equally to B2B as it does B2C? Are there some changes to needed to one or the other? Yeah, I mean, look, in some ways, B2C is a little bit more simple in, in terms of you're your selling to a single individual. So tracking their preferences and their needs over time is, is a little bit easier. And also, with, for most things, this, the purchase is more transactional. Uh, not not necessarily for big things like homes or cars or insurance policies or financial planning, but for most things, it's, it's smaller. Whereas B2B, you could have 7, 10, 15 people on a buying committee. There's so many factors that, that can get in the way. You get procurement departments, accounting departments, legal departments, and all that stuff. I don't know that there's actually that many formal sales methodologies for B2C, but for B2B, it's as long as my arm. You know, like... You're kind of, <laughs> it's like you know, whether it's Sandler or solution selling or Miller Hyman or customer centric selling or MedPick or, you know, pick one there. Why? Because it's hard because it is, you're, you're gonna, it's, it's, it's so um, matrixed. But yeah, I do think the concepts of the loop 
apply to both, but you're going to implement it differently depending upon who your true customer is. So you made that marriage analogy, and and I've heard you you make that analogy uh, talking about this elsewhere as as well, and I, I think it makes a lot of sense because you know so much of what we do is you know, we're just trying to bring people in, and then we we forget about it. Uh, and similar to a marriage, you have to keep working at your marriage even once you get married, uh, right? Uh, so do you feel like the traditional funnel is fine to get people into the door, and then you switch over to the loop, or does the loop kind of completely replace the what we think of as a traditional funnel? Look, ideally it replaces it, but we're also realistic and look, we face this challenge every day. A lot of our customers love the concept of the loop, but where they are in their own journey, they're just not ready to implement all those things. So having a pretty good working funnel is better than having a complete loop that you can't implement. So in terms of maturity, we do start our clients with a simple funnel. I mean, just because we're advocating for the loop. At the end of the day, we try and help our clients succeed. So we're not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater. We believe the loop is better. But look, if where you are right now is you need the funnel, then we'll, we'll put in the funnel and we'll get you successful with it. And then we'll get you to that next step. When you talk to, I guess, probably new clients or, or prospective clients, what's the biggest pushback that you get from this? Is, is it people just hanging on to the, the idea of the funnel for dear life because they think it works? Or is there other no, sort of pushback? No, you know, it's, it's because change is hard. People are used to working with what they know, even if it's not completely efficient or effective. So sometimes it's easier to go with the devil that you know than to change to something that you don't. Look, the loop is, sure, it's not in terms of setting up fields in your CRM system and putting together some procedures. That's really the easiest part. The hard part's the change mindset. The, the, to truly pivot to being customer-centric as a company is very difficult. Everyone talks about, oh yeah, we're building a better customer experience. We, you know, we're all about customer centricity and transformation. No, they're not. It's like they're, and they're not. They're not anywhere remotely close to doing that. Um, people confuse customer service with customer centricity. They are not the same thing. You can respond quickly to your customers, have a high customer satisfaction rating. You know, successfully close their case or their ticket and be be nice. But that's about responding. That's being of service which is important. Of course it is. You know, you want to have good customer service, but that's not the customer centricity is designing your systems, your people, your processes, your tech, everything is centered around the customer. That's fundamentally very different mindset when every company managers fix things. They buy technology, they put in new processes, they hire people to fix stuff, to manage stuff. And all of that is about them and their company and their needs. None of it has anything to do with the customer. So to start changing all that, to reimagine your, your technology architecture, reimagine your processes, reimagine your org structures, your people, reimagine the skill sets, reimagine your culture, it's a lot of work. And so for most people, they're like, yeah. <laughs> it's easier to just do nothing. This sounds, this sounds like a lot of work, yeah, it's, Jeff. It's, it's nice, but you know we're okay. We'll just, we'll just stay with the funnel for now. Thanks. Yeah. So what, what is that mindset that people need to get into to, to properly bring this into their, their company? You have to really truly believe that putting your customer at the center of your universe is the right thing for your business. And it has to have executive support from the highest levels on down. People point to Amazon and Netflix as the, as the beacons and to, in many ways they should be. But the, what they fail to realize is from the day one, that these companies were built from the ground up around the customer. 
it's part of their DNA. It's part of their culture. I mean, Jeff Bezos famously has empty chairs in all the meetings, right? The customer, they literally will talk to the chair. Like they're not embarrassed to talk to an empty chair because it's really that serious about what would our customer would do? What would our customer want to do? How do we think? They hire for it, you know? And, and so when, when companies are hiring for culture, if you're not hiring for people that are just passionate about customer centricity, even if they're highly skilled, well-educated, had lots of them, um, check all the other boxes, you're still going to miss the mark because fundamentally they're not there. Like in their core being, they're just not wired that way. That doesn't mean they're not good people. It doesn't mean that they're not successful professionals. It just means that they're not going to see the world that way. So you're going to spend a lot of time pushing that rope uphill, getting them to change their mindset. And have you, I'm sure there's no one size fits all, but have you seen anything help to change people's mindset? Like, do you have to come with data? Do you have to speak more to the personal side? Anything you've seen work? You know, to me, the biggest change happens in the smallest pieces and, and happens organically. Um, when the concept works, even if it's complicated underneath, it just takes off, right? So look at something like ChatGPT. To build ChatGPT has taken years. I mean, the, the code, the training, everything underneath that, massively complicated. Most of us will never even possibly understand how it was built. But the interface, we all get it. Oh, I, I ask it a question. I type this. It does this way. I wipe seat. There's a reason why it became the fastest downloaded app in history, right? Even passing TikTok because it was in the simplicity. So when we talk about change in an organization, starting off with the with the little things, right? Uh, I know you're going to ask me this question at the end, right? Like what? But it, it, I think it applies now. Just start off by inviting your customer to come in to a meeting and ask them what they want, and then do something for them. You know, give them a service, a feature, a widget, ask them to give you feedback. That's something every company can do. It doesn't cost any money, but every company has a roadmap, services, products, companies they want to buy, etc. Like change it up, get a customer track on there, have an initiative per quarter, just do one thing, you know, around, around the customer. That's how it starts. Success builds momentum. People get excited when what they see was doing the ties to the bigger picture and success breeds success. But these big, massive convoluted initiatives that CEOs are famous for, they typically fall because the organization gets trained. Like, well, they're going to announce it. We'll say rah, rah, rah. They're going to give us some t-shirts. Three months from now, they're going to be back to other stuff. So I'm just going to say I support it. But really, until my manager starts holding me accountable for this, I'm not going to really bother with it. So it's, it's really no point of getting out with this big banner saying we're going to be customer centric now. And you're not actually really doing anything to become customer centric. And so the loop seems like something that is a huge overhaul that it's it completely fundamentally changes how we market and, and, and sell things. I guess maybe the first question is, is that incorrect? Or if the answer to that is, yes, it is a big overhaul. Is there a, a way that you can kind of try this out in your company? That's a low lift way. Well, it is a big overall, as I just said, but yeah, like, okay, start off with an onboarding program. I Almost every company I talk to, everyone could do a better job of onboarding their customers. I mean, no one would say they do it 100% perfect. Okay, let's come up with something. You know what? Maybe let's send a welcome video from our CEO. Let's send them a small thank you card or a gift basket. If they're local, let's just take them out for a thank you lunch. Right? What, how can we make them feel warmer, more accepted? Can we put together a 
six touch email that explains things to them, like simple technology. I mean, yes, it'd be nice to go out and build portals and apps and all this other stuff. But, you know, remember, it's about the relationship. So let's go back to the marriage analogy. Sure. I mean, everybody wants to have nice house, nice cars. I don't think anybody's spouse is going to object if, if their other spouse buys them something really nice. But sometimes it's the little things like you got them flowers. You just got them a card because, you know, you took off work early and you surprised them and you took them out for a date at the lake or something. You know, not everything has to be big and dramatic. It's the little things that show that you actually care about the customer. So start with onboarding. Work on that for three to six months. Can you do one or two things to improve the way that you onboard your customers? That's easy enough. Right? Don't worry about calling it something. Like, you know, I, I'm not, just because we came up with it, I could give a shit if you call it the loop or not. You don't have to give me any credit <laughs> uh, or my company credit. Just, I just want to see you become more customer centric. So start by saying, you know what? We want to make those first month with our customers really, really meaningful. And all we're going to work on over this quarter is how we do that. We want to delight every customer so that they have the best experience. Let's work on that. Right. Um, that's an easy thing to do. I love Jeff's approach for starting with onboarding for two reasons. First, because it lets me plug another episode of the show, which is episode eight with onboarding expert Donna Weber. If you want to get started with fundamentally changing the onboarding experience, check out that episode and her book, Onboarding Matters. But the second reason I love it is because onboarding can be such a vital time to show your customers how customer centric you truly are. Like Jeff said earlier, too often we bring new customers in the door and then we forget about them. But great onboarding shows them that your journey together really is just beginning. Now, another easy thing to do, at least to get feedback, is start asking your customers more about how they measure success. Forget your marketing speak and your lingo. What is important to them? What value do they get by buying your product or service? If they were to recommend you, what words would they use? How would they describe you? And you're going to be shocked and surprised to see it's probably going to be different than all the marketing stuff and sales stuff you've been spewing out. But that's the that's the goal. Like, you know, that's that's the stuff that people really, really want to talk about. So again, take that feedback, bake it back into your product and service development roadmap. That's how you start to get better. I don't know. And this includes my company, by the way, as much as we use the loop. I mean, managing references and case studies is a pain in the ass, right? Oh, customer's interested in so-and-so. Do we have a case study? Like, well, yeah, I could have him call Bob again for the fifth time in like the last three weeks because he's easy. Bob always does with me a solid. But, oh, my God, do we have a case study about this? Where is it? Yeah, I think it's in PowerPoint. Well, maybe go look in SharePoint. No, I think it's over here. Go check the website. We spend, what? days, hours, weeks, whatever, hunting this stuff down just to get a reference. So why don't we spend more time formalizing our reference management process? We all have customers that love us. Why can't we spend some amount of time and just get that organized, get it into a database, put it into a common file, train people where it is. It's not rocket science, but yet we don't do it. I think, I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier. It sounds like a lot of work. I don't know if I want to do it. It's a lot of work. <laughs> you know, that one's actually though easier. It really is not, you know, Cool thing though about ChatGPT, like, heck, I mean, and I, look, I've been here since the beginning, since we started the company. I remember a lot of our case studies, but I don't remember them all. And, you know, and I was going back, you know, because it could search back and like, we, just like any other company, we update our website every year or two. And 
new case studies come on, others drop off. And I'm like, oh, yeah, forgot about that company. Okay, yeah, because I was like, hey, case studies for Pedowitz Group for this, case studies for Pedowitz Group for that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I remember that. So I can like start grabbing it. We all, ha- we all the, the longer we're in business, the more we forget about the good stuff we've done because we're constantly worrying about today and tomorrow and we forget about yesterday. But yesterday could be a good teacher, you know, both good and bad, if we're willing to listen, we're willing to learn. So that's where some of this new tech, like generative AI, can be very helpful and very constructive because it can save time. I'd love to have you go through the five stages of the expansion phase of the loop, which is what happens after the customer signs. If people want to go more in depth, they can check out your book, F the Funnel, but let's give a brief overview and cover key things that companies do wrong in each of those stages. So we divide the loop really into two halves. There's the the acquisition part of getting the customer for the first time, and then there's the expansion of the customer, the client relationship. So with the expansion, we say there's five phases. There's onboarding, there's adoption, there's value realization, there's loyalty, and there's advocacy. Onboarding represents the time from when the contract is signed to really getting your customer indoctrinated into your system, your processes, or they're introduced to the team. They're being set up with whatever they need to be set up with. And and we're bridging from, okay, it was a sales kind of process. Now they are a client. Now it's bridging into that next phase of the relationship. So uh, it depends on what you're selling and what you're delivering. Onboarding could be as short as a couple days. It could be as long as a couple months. I'd say for most companies, it's probably about two to four weeks. So maybe you're setting up a portal, you're sending them out a welcome, you're, you're getting key contact information at your customer, you're making sure they have key contact information with us. Maybe there's assessments for them to complete or paperwork or other stuff that we need them to do. Maybe we need to do some things for them. Maybe we're um, setting up software or databases or we have to set up custom manufacturing line. I mean, it's going to be different for, for everybody. But, but really, it's the phase of we're bridging out of the contract, we're getting ready to deliver whatever it is that the customer purchased. And so during this phase, we really want them to feel welcomed. We want them to reinforce that, you know, that they made a good decision, that the money they spent, because now think about it, now they've signed the contract, the risk has moved to them. They're spending their company's money now and, and, and the clock is ticking versus, you know, so if anything, they were dating, right? They were dating up until the, until we got married. Now we're married. Now they're, they're vested. So, Every company goes through this, right? For whatever reason, customer delays forever in the sales cycle. But yet when they sign the contract, they want to get started yesterday. <laughs> Why? Well, because now now they're on the clock. Now they are actually spending money. Now they signed the contract. Whereas before, it was only a possibility, right? But, but, but now that it's real, look at the clock's ticking. So that's the onboarding phase. Uh, I'd say the biggest mistake that, that companies make is just not doing it. I, most companies don't really do onboarding. Yeah. They just pass it off to a CSM and call it onboarding. Yeah. Maybe that, yeah, maybe it's a quick introduction or they send you your login link. That's not really onboarding. That's just, that's very mechanical. It's, it's not, but it's not an onboarding process. So the biggest mistake is skipping right over that and getting right into delivery. And that's such a key important phase of really building value and trust Another reason why it's important is, you know, some customers, the salesperson stays with that client for life, which is great. But many companies, that's not what happens. You know, there's some type of transition between the salesperson to a, a client success person, a manufacturing lead or a partner, maybe. Um, and, and 
there's no relationship yet because the customer, we haven't spent any time with them. Customers haven't spent any time with them. So that's why it's really important that that happens. Um, so the biggest mistake is people skip it. So the next stage is an adoption. Now this phase can really, again, depends on what the product or service is. It could be as short as a couple of weeks. It could be as long as six to seven months, depending upon, you know, what, what the product was by the time it gets implemented or delivered or sold. The bigger the spend, the longer the period is. So onboarding is actually going longer. Adoption is going longer because they haven't received it yet. Now, maybe it's an ERP implementation. It could be six months long. So they, they paid the money for the, the implementation, but they, they can't really adopt it yet while it's being implemented. So they're kind of like in this quasi stage, right? They're, they're kind of onboarding and adoption, but they can't. Until it's implemented, they're in that holding pattern. They're still using their old system. Uh, but the most important thing in adoption is getting the customer to not only use, get full utility out of what their business case was, but also getting them to, to, to use more of the product. Um, and, and that early period when they first start using it is the most critical period. Because if customers don't start using it right away and seeing value in almost every industry, it, it's predictable. They're going to churn. Because people don't have patience for anything. It doesn't matter what, what it was. So if they don't start using it, they're like, this is too hard. We made a mistake. We'll go back to doing it the old way. Or we need to get somebody to train how to use this and we'll delegate it to them or we'll outsource it. We'll do this as a managed service. This is too hard. Whatever the reason is they, they haven't built a true connection with your, with your company. So this is another critical point of failure. So where a lot of companies get it wrong is they're using vanity metrics, like digital login, satisfaction surveys, you know, net promoter scores. That doesn't really tell you if someone's adopted it or not. Right. I could sell you a car and you could drive it every day. Is that adoption or are you using all the you know the features in the car that, that it comes with? That's a truer indicator of how much you use it. So which also goes to your sense of utility with why you bought the car in the first place. So it's, it's really adoption is about getting the user or users to use as much of your solution as possible within that time period. So that drives value. The next phase is value realization. This is not our value. Sure, we value the customer. We want them to buy again. This is the customer's value. And so there are the obvious things, increasing revenue, saving money, saving time, becoming more efficient, becoming more effective. But there could be others. It could be improving morale. Maybe it gets them promoted. Maybe it improves alignment. Maybe it lowers their risk. Maybe they get into compliance. I mean, there, there's other dimensions of value. It's really, really important to understand what the business benefits your customer wants to get out of it and that you are tracking this on a regular basis and you are doing everything you can to get your product or your service to meet that value. And I was going to say this probably, this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, which is understanding how your customers think about value, right? Like what, what does value actually mean to them? It's not about our metrics, but it's about understanding to this individual person, how are they measuring the success of our product or service? That's right. So, I mean, look, think about, let's go back to the marriage. Your spouse values going antiquing Saturday mornings. I feel like this is a real analogy here. <laughs> it actually is. <laughs> you know, where the other person might value just watching sports or hanging out. Okay. You can't have one without the other. So if you're not willing to honor the first, it's you might get the second for a while, 
but the satisfaction breaks, the tension rises because the other person's not getting value from what they wanted. The same thing applies in business. And also part of the value realization is expectation, setting, alignment, and realignment. So with our company, we use like a simple red, yellow, purple system. You know, clients are purple, but they're happy. They're doing great. Yellow is a caution. Red, you know, we want to get on it. Whenever a client stakeholder changes, like a manager leaves or a new person comes in, we always put the client in red, even if things have been going well. Uh, the, the reason is we've learned over the years is that we have the relationship with the other person. We don't have the relationship with the new person. So until we understand what that new person's expectations are, we could have been doing a crushingly great job. Maybe that the other person just gave us a great reference, but they're gone now. So this new manager and this new executive comes in and maybe they have their own agencies or consultants they like to work with, or they have their own way of measuring a project, or maybe they don't even think this project is important because they have something else that they want to do. And until we find out what that is and make sure that we're realigning, we're going to be measuring the wrong thing with the wrong person. And so the same thing happens with every business. It's measuring and remeasuring and rechecking and revalidating because that's really the only way can't take things for granted because value is at an individual level, not just the company level. Uh, but again, most companies don't even take the time to ask. And also asking for features is not the same thing as measuring value, right? Understanding what the features will be used for, what the business benefits are and how the customer derives benefits from that. That's the true measure of value. So you then cannot, you cannot get to loyalty or advocacy if you've not delivered value. It will never happen. Sure, you'll get your occasional evangelist, people that just love you to the moon and back. But that's only because at some point you delivered so much value to them, they're going to be a fan for life. It doesn't mean that you're delivering value on an ongoing basis. They just kind of permanently put you in their registry as delivering value. But for everybody else, it's a critical step. So no company today is going to continue to buy on a repeat basis if they're not getting business value from the commercial relationship. So in that next stage, it's loyalty as a repeat purchase. They're going to buy again. They're going to be referenceable if asked. Where do the companies get this wrong? Well, first of all, it's almost every case reactive. Hardly any companies put any kind of proactive attention towards managing their customers on an ongoing basis. There are some in the software industry in particular, they've gotten better at customer success managers and being a little bit more proactive there. Because they know in SaaS business, churn is everything, right? Nutrition is everything. A lot of their businesses don't think that way because they don't have that same sophistication that SaaS companies do in terms of measuring churn and revenue. They just generally wait till the annual contract or whatever it might be. They're not as, as focused on it and they're not being as held accountable by the street and investors for it. Uh, but yeah, it's still really important. And, and so that's, that's another case. And then with advocacy, um, it's it's similar, but also different. In advocacy now, you don't have to ask people to do anything. They want to talk about you on their own. They're going to just refer people without it being asked. But it's also another golden opportunity. The biggest mistake that companies make here is not managing the advocates. So if I have 10 people out there advocating for me, it would be in my best interest if I gave them the same message for the same period of time, gave them the tools, gave them the content. They're going to be out there promoting me. Let's amplify it. You know, I mean, as much as I would appreciate them all amplifying, if there, are, if there are 10 different messages versus one, right, I could get a much better yield from that investment in advocacy. So, again, this is another area which almost every, I would say over 90% of companies just completely ignore. They're not even doing it. 
They don't even know who their advocates are, you know, let alone manage it. But again, a golden opportunity. Study after study after study shows that referral-based marketing is the single best source of marketing because at the end of the day, our customers do not want to hear from us. They want to hear from other customers. They want to hear from people like them. We are not people like them. We are just the provider of the product or service that they want, and we've not built any trust or credibility with them yet until we actually have earned that loyalty ourselves over a period of time. Then, then, then we will, but they're not there at the beginning. So that's why all those things are important. And then it really just kind of comes back in and around again. You know, it's this never-growing cycle. And you could even have advocates. I mean, I've had people that have been promoting us since the day we opened the doors. They love Pedowitz Group. And some of them still think we only do some things versus others. I mean, it's just like, I think we all have that problem. You know, they started, they bought strategy from us. They don't realize we do technology or they bought technology from us. They don't realize we do creative execution. I mean, and, and I think a lot of businesses have that problem. And the more, the bigger your company is, the more SKUs you have, the more companies, the more brands you're managing, the harder the task. Because at the end of the day, the customer just sees the logo. They see, they see us as one, but their experience is so bifurcated. So you wrote this, or well, the book came out in 2021. I would imagine you probably started writing it in the pandemic, maybe before the pandemic. We're in 2023 now. I'd love to learn, do you think anything really, has fundamentally changed with how you need to apply the loop or how you describe the loop uh, two years after the book came out? Or is it still hit home kind of the same way? No, I still think it hits home. I, I think, look, uh, certainly the pandemic accelerated digital transformation for a lot of companies. It's accelerated certain industries. We now have the rise of AI and generative AI, and that's going to be a big game changer. But the problems are still the same. Sure, companies have improved how they're collaborating with each other. Um, you know, that we now have Teams or Zoom or all those things, and we're probably a little bit more digitally savvy in terms of marketing and reaching our customers. But I would say there's still a lot of work that needs to be done because companies are not still not focused on their customer. They're focused on themselves. Is there anything around this topic that we haven't covered that you think would be good for the listeners to know? Well, I mean, I've mentioned it a couple of times. You know, when I first wrote the book a couple of years ago, AI was around. Sure. I mean, AI has been around for the better part of 10 or 15 years now. But this new rise of AI over those last three or four months, particularly generative AI like ChatGBT, is going to be a game changer. So... Let's start off with the concept of chatbots and how well they could be integrated in with the concept of the loop. It's such a, it's an easier way to engage with customers wherever they're at. You could train those chatbots to be able to meet the customer where they are and give them exactly what they need when they need it. That's a nut. I don't want to exactly call it low-hanging fruit because chatbots, you can turn them on easy enough. Training them takes time, you know, and, and but in the grand scheme of things, Chatbot compared to putting in a major, major technology infrastructure is a much easier thing to do for, for most companies. And I'd say that's something that everybody should be doing this year. So my wrap-up question, we, we skipped ahead to it earlier on, which is the question of one thing people can do today, tomorrow to be more customer obsessed. And you said, you know, sitting down with a customer asking these questions. I, I'd love to, to revisit this. What, what does that actually look like when you bring this customer in? Maybe that's, you know, virtually. What are the types of things you need to, to talk to these customers about to really become more customer centric? Asking them honest questions. How do you use our product every day? What business value do you get from it? How would you describe us to your customers? 
What aren't we doing that you wish we did? What's been your greatest disappointment in our product or service and how should we fix it? What are the things that we're doing well? You know, how well do you understand everything within the platform when you say that you use it? Tell me what you use. How do you use it? Listen, uh, were you aware that we had X, Y, and Z? Listen, we're not there to refute, right? We're, we're there to truly get, let them speak in an unfiltered way so that we can absorb it, think about it, and then work as a management team to fix it. Just listen. I feel like it's something we don't, we don't do enough. Yeah. And hopefully Nike won't steal that slogan, right? So just do it. Just, just listen. Just listen. I have to imagine a, a Nike executive is probably listening to this right now. It's probably, probably, yeah. Maybe they'll make a movie out of it. Like, yeah. There you go. Um, look, it, it's, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. But that's what everybody's crying for. People want authenticity. They want transparency. They want to be truly treated in a personalized way. The technology is here now that allows that to happen. There's no reason that any company, big or small, even if you're a mom and pop shop, there's affordable technology that will allow you to personalize your marketing to your customers. But if you're not willing to make the effort, then you have to be willing to live with the consequences then because in this world now, more than ever before, customers have a plethora of choices. And, and not just here in the States, they can buy things from anywhere around the globe at the snap of a finger. And I think if you're a business, you don't understand that and you're not willing to change how you're approaching it and personalize your messages and truly care about your customers as, as individuals, then you're, you know, whether it's good economic times or not, you're going to fall behind. You just are. Love that. Well, Jeff, this has been terrific. I've, I've learned so much and uh, thanks so much for being on the show. No problem, Dan. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. The funnel is dead. Long live the loop. Hmm, that's kind of fun to say. Long live the loop. Long live the loop. Long live the loop. Long live the loop. Sorry, I'm just ruining it now. But this idea that we shouldn't stop working with our customers once they purchase isn't novel. It's a core tenet of customer marketing. But like customer marketing, while it's not brand new, it is early on enough that not that many companies are doing it, or at least doing it well. Jeff believes that by properly developing these systems to nurture our customers, we can build these long-term relationships that create loyal advocates who will, in turn, create more loyal advocates. Unfortunately, like Jeff mentioned, this isn't easy to do. Being truly customer-centric requires buy-in from everyone, especially at the top. But changing how you serve customers to align with their behaviors is a worthwhile endeavor. It just might be the most impactful thing you ever do. This has been the All About the Customer podcast brought to you by Influtive. I've been your host, Dan Kalmar. Until next time, long live the loop. Long live the loop, long live the loop, long live the loop, long live the loop, long live the loop.